Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On today's podcast, I have Pat, who ran the Trickle Down Socialism podcast for two years. TDS Pod is a critique of capitalism and an exploration of potential solutions to poverty and other societal problems caused by capitalism. Pat has taught history and civics in urban districts for 10 years. He's been working to fight poverty since he graduated from college in 2006, and he's also worked as a housing advocate where he's been tasked with finding housing for families put out by our predatory system of capitalism. He now lives in Massachusetts with his four daughters, wife, goats, chickens, cat, and a puppy. All right, so let's get right into it. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. socialist podcast teacher educator family man gardener poverty fighter and housing advocate welcome to necessary illusions thanks i'm i'm really happy to be here i've enjoyed checking out your show so far and the way that you kind of go at it with guests and explain where you're coming from and really listen to what they're saying it's good stuff man you got a lot of things going on, man. <laughs> that is accurate. Yes, I do. I've got two full-size goats, 15 chickens, four daughters, beautiful, loving wife and comrade. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. I just switched from Boston to uh, a small city outside of Boston uh, where I teach middle school. So uh, what are you teaching in middle school? So I'm usually a history and civics teacher, but I've been running a, a program that's designed to help kids who have missed significant amount of time because of mental health or other challenges. They come to me uh, for as long as they need. I tutor them in all their subjects and get them back up to speed and back into their mainstream classes. So I didn't even, I don't think had a civics class. I think a lot of people um, that's lacking in the educational system I, I kind of want to get into the educational system generally tonight with you. Uh, and I got a, uh, I got an education doctor and a higher ed uh, professor coming up soon. So I kind of want to kind of want to tear into the education system. One of my favorite books is uh, uh, Miseducation by Noam Chomsky. Uh, he's one of my favorite authors for sure. It's, it's a good one for sure. Uh, you've read it, have you? Mm-hmm. So Chomsky has been was big in, in kind of my initial development as a leftist. Mine too. I guess he's down in Arizona now, but I'm sure he still spends some time up in Massachusetts as a professor emeritus at uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Yeah, MIT. He's an MIT guy. Yeah. I listened to um, Les Friedman. He's a MIT AI person. He's got some interesting guests on there. I kind of want to do a – I'm having a, actually a physicist um, tomorrow, but I like some of the kind of big ideas he's been doing Um 
with, uh, you know, scientists and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I think he's pretty close with Elon Musk, though. I think he's been on this podcast a few times. So I smell some corporate and big money funding uh, of his podcast. Um, potentially, potentially some fascism, you know, it remains uh, to be okay. seen. We'll, we'll yeah. No, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the guy. I'm not going to speak for that. Uh, uh, but yeah, so some of the things I've you know talked with people seems to be lacking in education, um, civics and government, and then definitely like financial literacy. Um, I think that's an easy one, financial literacy. They they want to be able to have an ignorant population to take advantage of and you know kind of keep keep people in debt. I mean that's I think the new form of slavery. I mean I guess it's kind of an old form of slavery too. Um, but before I cherry pick on the <laughs> you know, the lack of financial literacy education. Um, yeah, civics. I don't think I had formal civics class in, in my uh, K through 12 education. Maybe bring us up to speed. What's some, what's some things you teach in physics or civics, I should say? No, I mean, so eighth grade civics in Massachusetts is well designed in the sense that every kid is supposed to get the basics of how government works at all three major levels, right? So local federal and state level governments and how those governments function. Um, by the end of the eighth grade civics course, they uh, should have completed some type of project where they research something and, and write to a, you know, it could be a city councilor, it could be a state rep, but um, that is the design to get them somehow involved. Um, so I think it's, it's well conceived in Massachusetts, but it's absolutely lacking across the country. It's, it's a shame. And I think it's, you know, why we've ended up where we are politically and why people are so easily manipulated by corporate propaganda, which to be honest, you know, any of the major 24 hour news networks are going to be ultimately pro corporate after all is said and done. So it's the same type of bias across the board. Yeah. I think too, in like the, um, so now like, you know, I mean, I think we're a little bit talking here about, K through 12 education, that seems like what you know best, um, but we've both, you know, been in, in institutions of higher education, so we can talk about that a little bit too. But, um, yeah, I mean, where does, where does the curriculum come from? You know, where do we get the curriculum? Uh, how does that work? You know, I mean, let's, let's, let's kind of go behind the curtain here. How does, how does the curriculum, how does it get brought to you? And, you know, as a teacher, what kind of influence and autonomy, you know, do you have to kind of work in what you think is important? I really want to get to history too. I think history is very, very political. I mean, there's a number of different ways to present uh, the same type of information. So like, for example, two periods in history, um, like revolutionary war in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then you could also just discuss, you know, genocide of the indigenous, the Native Americans here. Was that was that part of the Revolutionary War? Because these things were going on simultaneously. You know what I mean? So it kind of depends on how you want to tell history. But you can't tell the history of <laughs> revolutionary uh, independence in the United States without also saying that, you know, the settlers had to wipe out the people living here, you know, before they could settle it, that type of thing. So, you know what I mean? So there's... Yeah, no. It's so there's dicey with history. Are these two events or are these simultaneous events? You know what I mean? Yeah, so the, that's a great question on a number of levels. So the, the the broad frameworks for the curriculum comes from the state. And, you know, you can put whatever spin on it you want. It could be whatever bias. But the, the beauty of the system in Massachusetts, and especially where I was doing it in Boston, was the amount of autonomy that teachers had. So we were supposed to hit on specific topics. 
um, and make sure that we laid out the frameworks for how all government works at, at each level. But within that, we had a whole lot of leeway and I was pushed and I also was interested in pushing myself to decolonize and, you know, to de-Eurocentrify, right? To, to try to colonialize, like decolonialize this, this entire curriculum so that I'm teaching. So you could find this, an example of this in Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. So there's a young people's history of the United States of America. And that is, um, is a really good teaching tool for helping kids see the Revolutionary War from the perspective of the Mohawk natives and what was their role how were they decimated beforehand because of disease and, uh, you know, dirty tricks from yeah, the uh, first instance of bioterrorism, right? I remember, I forget what well, occurred, but there, I remember like uh, smallpox infected blankets. That's no, in the first it, instances absolutely, of bioterrorism. Absolutely use of bioterrorism there and absolutely disgusting. But what people fail to understand is that when Columbus first sailed over, there was a uh, a black person aboard who was, had sickle cell anemia and was immune to the effects of malaria, but was carrying malaria on his person. And so he spread it and it spread throughout all the trade routes, throughout all of the, the Americas. So everyone got hit first with, and at least a fifth of their population died as a result of malaria infection and death um, before they ever came in contact with white soldiers. So you're absolutely right. Smallpox were used by white settlers, you know, as bioterrorism. But even before that, they had faced the first like kind of plague that hit their people as a result of European contact. Yeah, I think I mean, it's not it's not like they're I mean, I know some of the European motives were absolutely nefarious. And I've done enough research in this period to know, that you know, uh, it, it was cruel and, um, you know, just really, really bad period in time. But some of it was just that, um, you know, they didn't even know they were carrying, you know, these different diseases that uh, a population of people living in the Americas had no immunity to. So even if they had the best of intentions, though, there would have been, you know, some whatever collateral, uh, you know, damage or, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff where it just was like a perfect storm. I mean, the, the intentions were to conquer and, um, you know, use weapons and um, I think horses are, I was written, I think, 1490. 1491 and 1493. Uh, oh, those are, yeah. yeah, Charles, Charles Mann. I was, yeah. I was just sharing one of the things that he talked about, the malaria thing. Uh-huh. I'm so, I'm so oh, glad yeah. you, I was, I was, read I was one of them. Yeah. But I yeah, remember like, he was saying like, I guess there was no, um, horses were a big thing that they, they were not here in the Americas. And also like the wheel, I guess they had invented the wheel in the Americas, but they hadn't really used it because they didn't have, um, livestock to kind of push, mm-hmm. you know, push the wheeled vehicles and the, and, and the Europeans, you know, had better weapons um, and uh, I guess transportation. And, um, you know, obviously they had bioterrorism and disease. So a perfect storm, you know, we're able to, where a small number of Europeans were able to conquer two continents, you know? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. So it, it, you know, germ theory was not understood, uh, but that, you know, doesn't, you know, that gives us a pass on one part of the terror that they cause, right? So it's definitely something, you know, to, to hold in mind that they were after, you know, riches, uh, prestige, Gold, yeah. yeah, influence within their communities for being uh, Catholic conquerors in the case of the Spanish conquistadores and stuff like that. So, yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I know we were talking about civics here, but now we're getting more into history. 
Yeah. Um, but I remember, like, in the book, um, sometimes we're, we're presented this narrative that, you know, there were indigenous peoples uh, living in the Americas, and they just kind of lived here in nature, and there was no, um, you know, uh, they didn't really um, manipulate the land or that sort of stuff. And that's just not mm-hmm. true. I mean, they had all different types of... Um, I think they did like brush fires and irrigation mm-hmm. canals and, you know, I mean, there was big cities and, and uh, very complex, um, you know, systems of government and culture and towns. Um, yeah. Nothing's perfect. I do, reading, I do remember reading like, I mean, there were um, elites, you know, in the Americas and hierarchies and systems of power and domination. So it's not like there were, um, you know, just a bootly innocent people just kind of frolicking and living uh, within nature. And there were, you know, living in, um, you know, just, I don't know, you know, in the uh, unpopulated lands just kind of fitting in. And that's, just, that's not what it was. It was a very complicated um, and sophisticated uh, society here. And part of what their, the Spanish wanted to do was destroy um, the culture here. You know, they wanted, I guess they, I remember like reading, like they banned native languages. Like I, I, at one time they were, uh, it was thought that uh, they didn't have writings here, and that that's found out to be just not true. That what no. the Spanish tried to do is just completely eradicate um, mm-hmm. native culture. And I think what they one of the weapons that they used was religion. That it seemed to be pretty effective. And I know, I think South America is one of the most. Um, I guess I don't know. I'm just kind of making up here, but I think that it seems like they're pretty religious, uh, pretty 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 into Christianity and Catholicism there. So obviously. I think that was a byproduct of um, this. I don't want to say the most religious or anything like that, but it seems like, you know, fairly religious, maybe on the, on par with America, maybe not quite as, you know, uh, radically um, evangelical as, as Americans, but yeah, it seems, so I'm down here in Texas, close to, close to the border of Mexico. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it seems like in, in general, there's a lot of religious and, and, and a lot of Christianity and Catholicism seems to be big here. So I think that was one of the, weapons that the Spanish use though, uh, to control, right. Religion. That seems like a very, I think, I think war, <laughs> you know, war, um, religion and money. Those are, those are pretty, pretty good methods to control a population. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And I think the, the use, you know, your explanation of religion as a tool of oppression is a good one. Um, I studied, you know, I minored in Spanish in college, and as part of that minor, I studied in Puebla, which is in central Mexico, just like two hours south of, of De Efe, which is Mexico City. And every morning I would ride my bicycle from where I was staying to the school, and in the distance I could see this volcano, this giant mountain with a little chapel on top of it. And come to find out that chapel was built by the indigenous people after the Spanish had forced them to destroy their own temple that had, they had built previously on that same spot. So absolutely, you know, just another example of the use of, you know, religion, but it wasn't, you know, in the, in the North, in North America, it was much more about control and, and making money. Right. So the English settlers were forming corporations right off the bat. Right. So Jamestown, (laughs) I used to teach students about Jamestown and say, you know, let's look at the manifest of the ship, the second ship, that are coming into the the city as people are starving as people are like dying of mosquito bites and all these you know mosquito-borne illnesses and it says on the ship's manifest uh wig maker three they're sending three wig makers because they want you know vanity rules and they're you know they had just by that point figured out that they could 
grow tobacco and sell that as their cash crop. But, you know, it's just pretty, pretty interesting how each of those colonies was either formed by, you know, in, in, in the case of the conquistadores, they were looking for silver and gold. You know, they weren't as much as they were saying they were conquering land for the Catholic church. They were also looking for gold for the Catholic church and for their king and queen. And um, I think that uh, some of the English colonizers, uh, this is more so uh, in the in North America, but a very rigid kind of caste system, a class-based mm-hmm. society with like nobles and elites. I kind of like the word elite because it just kind of mm-hmm. stands for, you know, a, a, a person above others, that kind of thing. Because, uh, you know, you can kind of get into the terminology, but I think the same kind of term applies today. We have elites and uh, everyone else, you know, and uh, you know, yeah. this tiny sliver of the population. But that's kind of the way it seemed like um, to me. And I remember reading some stuff here where, you know, some of the elites, the nobles would come over and work was kind of frowned upon. And I even mm-hmm. read in Aristotle, like, um, in, you know, in, in ancient Greece, they had slaves that did a lot of the hard labor and you were um, a man. I mean, I, I want to say a person, but back then, you know, man, men had status, you know, not... Not like, uh, obviously, we had a lot of, um, you know, social justice um, wins and victories since then. But back then, you know, it was the men were the ones able to vote ancient Greece and also in the, you know, colonial America. But, um, you know, hard work was kind of frowned upon. Like you were a lower class member of society if you did a lot of the hard work. And I remember reading some of the first colonizers that came over, um, the Anglo ones uh, in Jamestown, Virginia, that kind of stuff where, you know, they, they kind of drank and did had their weapons and forced other people to do the hard work. And it seemed like that kind of society continued to develop uh, in the South. You know, that was kind of the early, you know, uh, seeds of slavery, you know, before yeah. they even had the, um, you know, cross Atlantic slave trade. Um, there were lower class Europeans and maybe even indentured servants and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. doing all the hard work while the nobles and the elites, you know, kind of drank and made decisions. And, you know, it was kind of a top down hierarchy, the same kind of hierarchy and system of domination control that the corporations still utilize today, where you have a board of directors at mm-hmm. the top executives and, yep. you know, whatever they say, you know, crap rolls downhill, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's not much, um, there's not much top down or there's not much top up, you know, influence, you know, policy is dictated from uh, at the top and, you know, kind of goes downward. And I, I've made a lot of comparisons like feudalism and capitalism. I mean, there's, there's of course, this is uh, some differences, but yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities. And I think, um, you know, the nobles and Kings and Queens were, pretty much replaced with, um, you know, corporate executives, the way I see it, at least. No, that's a great point. You know, and the, it, it was, in fact, Jamestown and, you know, Bacon's Rebellion, where there was a definition by a judge of a slave being an African-American person, someone whose family originated in Africa. Um, and that was to divide the white indentured servants who were working towards their freedom, you know, five years maybe to pay their passage uh, and then they were free versus anyone who was darker skinned um, just and that was when the classification was strong. Right. So the other piece, when you say drinking, they were all were drinking because water was so nasty there. They could not figure out how to purify water and have it as a good source. So they just drank beer and, and hard cider as they're like <laughs> go to, you know, just yeah. 
to avoid dehydration. Oh, but wow. you're, you're absolutely right that from a very early point in each of the colonies, hierarchy was enormous and control was foremost, foremost like that was what they wanted. Whereas, you know, the Spanish were setting up cities and kind of conquering in Roman style where they kind of try to incorporate all of that city. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas the English were kind of trying to like take over, like a lot of times they landed in areas that were summer camps or, you know, off season for the people who would have used those lands otherwise, or in the case of Jamestown, they set up in a swamp. Like they didn't get it that you, you really don't want to be in a swamp for most of the year in Virginia. That's not a good choice. So that's basically where where they set up. What about uh, civics in in general? Um, what sort of things? So maybe you know you can get deep into history, and, and I want to talk uh, you know because this is I guess like you know th- this time period is not by any means um, a strength of mine. I'm learning, and I want to I have a indigenous uh, people's history uh, book, which is it's really good. But I want to keep yeah. Reading it, but like one of the things I found out is like indigenous history. There's not a lot of it out there, and yeah. from some of my readings, it's really kind of a new area of study. It hasn't been much uh, scholarship um, prior to maybe the 1960s and the civil rights movement. This was not an area, um, you know, of um, I guess you know very much influence, or you know, I guess from from. Uh, at least power centers in the United States. And I can remember Chomsky um, reading some of his stuff and saying, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, we were still playing cowboys and Indians, you know, that kind of stuff. So it seems like um, I'm even glad. Pa- even past that, like my dad oh, remembers sure. playing it, you know, and I think we even talked about it when I was a kid, you know, I was born in 83. So yeah. 100%. Yeah. And I like uh, Chomsky always like talks about this historical um, engineering and revisionist history. But like the Wild West was some fictitious period. This was not uh, any any period in in history that actually happened. It was kind of a you know like a like dime novel or a comic book. You know, it was kind of a fictionist period of American history created. So uh, maybe to help uh, you know gun manufacturers sell more guns after after the Civil War. Uh, after and there's uh, there's of course you know still the need to. There were still patches of resistance from the Native Americans and, you know, white settlers were still trying to conquer, you know, coast to coast and that sort of thing. So it was a, one way to, after the Civil War was over, continue to sell weapons and arms. I mean, America is a very uh, dangerous country, uh, a very violent country, an insane gun, um, just insane gun culture here. At every every single day, it seemed like, I, I think I tweeted like um, a number of, Dozens, I don't even know how many, what the number was, but dozens of, uh, there's, a, I think there's every single day there's been a toddler, a shooting in, involved a toddler, a toddler shooting an adult or something like that. Like, but do you, know, do you know what it is? This is a really good point you're making here, is the idea that back then they scared people into thinking that they were about to be attacked by Native Americans at any point, right? Just to drum up that fear, sell guns, sure, but also to control people, right? It's so much easier to control. And that's the same reason that our mainstream news focuses so heavily on the dangerous crimes and the, the very few, very, very, very rare instances of random crime, which doesn't actually really happen, right? Yeah. It's like, so it's those things that are spread in the exact same way that people were meant to believe that natives could come riding through town at any moment. Like, it's just not how it went down. And yeah. it was absolutely, like you say, used as a tactic 
to help sell guns and to help uh, explain to people why they needed, you know, police or whatever protection around them that was never around them before. Right. So those police institutions started as slave patrols to catch runaway slaves coming from the south. So it's just. And that's what like um, our our gun culture. So I'd mentioned like the Revolutionary War uh, and then what's the, the right to bear arms? Is that the Second Amendment? Yeah, I, I, that's like one of the things the right does is like, you know, you have to memorize the Constitution, but you can't read what it says. You just have to like memorize your favorite passage or whatever. Uh, I, yeah. I don't study it. It's nonsense. I, I don't take too much uh, importance from the Constitution. I actually think it's some decent stuff there. One of my favorite, um, I think it was a philosopher, statesman, whatever. I mean, Thomas Jefferson obviously has a lot of baggage and personal flaws as pretty much everyone did in that period of time. But I like a lot of the stuff that he said, he had mentioned the rise of money corporations and how that was going to, um, you know, uh, lead to the destruction, um, you know, of of the country and democracy, at least as they knew it. But of course, you know, back then democracy meant, um, a a landed aristocracy of rich white property owners. So, you know, I think, um, so you know, democracy was it's, always it's very limited. Rich, rich white um, property owners who are Christian, but Protestant specifically, men, right? You got to make sure you hit all those points. It was a very exclusive, tight knit yeah. group who had a say in what was written into that constitution. And I like to talk about the U.S. Consti- the U.S. Revolution as like kind of a lateral move, right? We just went from being mad at the owners who were back in England. You know where he, we had to pay a tax to the king, yeah. to to new owners, new masters here who were just the landowners, right? right. The land owning gentry who were really just a very small percentage of of colonists, um, and just had a you know an outsized amount of control. And one of the other factors that people don't talk about is the fact that England was starting to push towards abolition. So yeah, the, that's, yeah. So that's yeah. what I remember reading too. Is Sorry, like, um, the uh, the a lot of the natives they were they were uh, in favor of <laughs> of England. They wanted to fight for England because they knew if the Americans won the revolution, that was going to be the end of them. You know, yeah. so yeah, that's that's big. I mean, that's that's I don't really remember re- reading or learning about any of this kind of stuff until recently. That should be yeah. in every you know in, in mm-hmm. elementary school, right? We should talk about this stuff that the different things that are going on. I mean, this is a very important period of time. And I want to get back to the second amendment though. Um, the, one of the reasons the right to bear arms. Okay. We had, we had a three front war. I mean, we have, we're facing Britain uh, for revolution. I mean, I'm saying we as, you know, Americans and whatnot. Um, and I, I, I kind of like some of the Samuel Adams stuff. I'm, I'm an anarchist and I, I read some of his, uh, I read some of the founding father stuff and it seemed like he was a little bit of an anarchist. So I like, I like some of the founding father stuff. Um, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson and some of the um, money corporations. I'm going to try to read this quote, but basically at the time of the amendment, uh, the constitution and stuff, we had a three war front Britain. Uh, we were also, uh, again, as Americans, the genocide of the natives and the indigenous. So that was uh, one of the reasons to justify um, a strong right to bear arms or whatever. And then of course, you know, the slave societies that were developing in the South, um, I don't think there were many revolts, but at any period of time, you know, you have 
dozens, you know, tens, twenties, fifty to one, you know, in terms of some of these plantations. So that was another reason to, to keep oh, but, people in line because of. But um, hold on, hold on. There were so many revolts. It, it it's so undertaught it, throughout all of history courses across the U.S. It's undertaught the fact that there were slavers revolts. There were successful flea attempts. There were maroon colonies. So maroon colonies are colonies that are founded by and run by and controlled by former slaves who have escaped. And there were maroon colonies south in Florida when Florida was Spanish owned. And there were maroon colonies um, throughout the like the Appalachian Mountains and stuff where people had uh, run away from poverty or run away from slavery and set up successful colonies uh on the outskirts and it's super cool and it's just not taught as well as it should be or even at all in most history curricula yeah i think that i mean one of my favorite time periods is the anarchist revolution in spain um but yeah i think a lot of these you know a lot of these um resistance movements dissident movements movements started maybe by leftists that are trying to um you know I guess, revolt mainstream establishment and, and that kind of thing, they kind of all seem to start, um, you know, a little bit of anarchistic in nature, you know, kind of small scale. Um, and yeah, there's probably not a lot of, um, there's probably way more stories and, and uh, tales about these, you know, these uh, historical periods. But I think over time, they're usually crushed by, you know, by power centers um, within the society. And then there's yeah. also, there's never, people in power don't want, you know, the risk of a good example. That's one of the reasons why, right. um, right. whatever, whatever it's called the so-called Western democracies, any slightly leftist government, um, mm-hmm. that demonstrates, you know, maybe some socialist policies. And all that means to me is policies that are helping society, whether it's education, healthcare, or maybe more egalitarian land distribution, um, yep. you know, socially, yeah, um, and land, re- land reform is a winner throughout Latin America for, uh, people running to lead a country um, and it often gets you ousted by u.s backed forces and we were training them at the school of the americas in fort benning georgia i had professors in college who would go down to fort benning georgia and to protest and cross the line and get arrested it was so cool you know to hear their stories but yeah it's just really sad how many times we've stepped in and just like you said just vaguely leftist policies where they are deciding to give land back to peasants who, you know, have been robbed historically of that land. Yeah. So liberation theology was a big part of the history of Latin America. And it also uh, kind of was driven at, at, at some points by Catholic priests, um, Jesuits and other groups throughout Latin America. Um, But what's really interesting is once that liberation actually took off, right? Like something like Cuba, you know, to, to wrap this back to, you know, a great episode I heard of yours uh, with um, Dr. Cabral about Cuba and a, a number of other things, but also our conversation about civics is that, you know, Cuba is taught to people in, you know, around here that there's no freedom there, right? It's like, well, no, you know, no one has a voice. Everyone hates it there. And then you come to find out that, you know, recently they passed uh, an amendment to their constitution that started at the grassroots level. So this amendment was, um, about kind of redefining the family and making it so that people with non-traditional families could still receive government benefits and all that be recognized by the law. So it was like trans rights and gay rights and 
and just like kind of freedom overall. But it started off as a grassroots movement on uh, among these town councils. And That's many leftist that. movements do, right? Right. But, you know, this amendment just moved up the chain that way. And then once, you know, it was decided by the central government in Cuba that they were going to go ahead and make this amendment, then it was passed back down to those town councils and and kind of written, ratified, and just like an incredibly democratic, where it's much more like direct democracy. um, And it feels much more from the people than what we're led to believe about there. Whereas here, you know, money is speech. And I teach that to kids and I try to make it clear to them what Citizens United did, you know, even though it didn't necessarily change the landscape, it legalized the fact that we basically have legalized corruption here in the U.S. Yeah, corporations prior to were able to um, buy corporations uh, clandestinely, I guess, you know, but um, now they, with the Citizens United, are able to just explicitly do it. Uh, what What everyone already knew was happening was, you know, corporations, of course, were buying elections. Now they can do it right out in the open. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's just, you know, it's shocking how much you'll hear people talk vaguely about freedom here or or other things. And it's like, well, really? You know, free to do what, right? Free, do we get to go to college if we're smart enough? Not necessarily, right? Or unless we want a mountain of debt when we get out. You know, there's all kinds of freedoms that don't really feel like freedoms, right? We don't have the freedom to get sick. You know, even my union healthcare which used to be incredible in my previous district is now to the point where it's just like, you know, kind of scary to take the kids in because we don't know what kind of surprise bills are going to come back at us. And that's just ridiculous. Yeah. And the co-pays, I mean, we already pay uh, outlandish uh, premiums and, and then they continue to, uh, you know, offset the cost of production onto the consumer. Mm-hmm. And as the costs go up, of course, uh, the quality of the healthcare is absolutely not any better, um, <laughs> no. you know, but yeah, I think it's absurd, um, you know, in, in Anglo law, uh, I guess I, I did a podcast, one of my solo ones about, um, I think it was the early 1900s, uh, I think it was a case in California, uh, the railroad companies, where they gave them the rights of people, and obviously that just took off in, in, in capitalist society and, and in, you know, Western law, and then to equate um, uh, speech to money is just absurd. I mean, we're under some of the most absurd legal principles that are just destroying um, people's lives because we're allowing these private tyrannies, these hierarchies, these transnationals um, with incredible power and scale. Uh, We had discussed, you know, maybe feudalism and capitalism and the similarities, but uh, the kings and queens of a, you know, a feudal era couldn't have even imagined um, the power that some of these transnational corporations um, would amass um, the resources. And, and I have a, um, I guess I, I like Thomas Jefferson, uh, the philosophy, the philosopher, um, all, all human beings are flawed. I don't raise anyone to divine status. That's one reason why I never consider myself a Marxist, uh, reading some of Marx's stuff right now. Um, but I can think independently. I think there's a lot of good stuff that Marx says, uh, but he's certainly no god of mine. I always say at the end of my podcast, no gods, no masters. 
Um, but yeah, Thomas Jefferson, you got to read some of the stuff he said. You got to understand that he owned people. So, you know, when he talked about freedom and equality and justice, it's coming from the same person that literally owned people, you know. Um, but he did say that um, the end of democracy and the defeat of the American Revolution will occur when government falls into hands of lending institutions and moneyed in corporations. He said that after his presidency in early 1900s, um, just prior to. Uh, the Industrial Revolution as capitalism was just about to take off. And, um, yeah, another one of my favorite philosophers, John Dewey, said that politics is the shadow cast on society um, by big business. Um, so we can, you know, we can change some of the policies to influence or change that shadow. But if we don't address the corporations, um, you know, we're, we're never going to change the system. Uh, and then I also saw and put this into my solo podcast, but Delaware, uh, I think there was a town, I don't know if it went through or not, but they're, uh, they're going to allow, um, corporations to just straight up vote in elections, which is absolutely absurd, making a complete mockery of whatever is left of American democracy. And as Chomsky would say, it was really not, not, not all that great to begin with, unless of course you were, um, a landed white property owner of a specific, <laughs> you know, religious, uh, you know, sect or, or whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you bring up a lot of really good points there. Uh, the railroads, especially, um, because they are such a touchstone, such a golden age of capital kind of gaining influence in the U S uh, you know, they had those barons, as you mentioned, they, you know, it was kind of a the robber barons. Yeah. A rough transition from feudalism into capitalism. But there's one case that, that I think really like, elucidates you know it makes it so clear what it was like for workers in this time uh, especially immigrant workers versus the owners right so there's a case of you know recent historical discovery archaeological discovery of murphy's cut in pennsylvania and in this cut they've you know, basically like through ghosts that they saw like dancing in the field late at night they started to exhume these areas and they found um a I forget the number, but like 70 people who had bullet holes in the skull and they were Irish immigrants who were working on the railroad. And in the records, it said that they had all died of typhoid, yeah. but historians looking at that said that typhoid, you know, only killed 10, 15% of a population It never wiped out the whole worker camp, right? It wiped out every worker in the camp. And what they came to find out through, you know, careful study was that those workers were pushing back and asking for better wages or yeah. better treatment of some sort. And they were just lined up and executed. Right. So it's like, it's an age where capital realizes, you know, and capital, I say, generally those who own, yeah, and those, those, they realize that they can buy influence. And so they started to do that to buy themselves out of trouble and to gain the type of foothold they needed to, run railroad track all the way across the country and, you know, support their railroad stations as they did that. So, you know, and, and the other piece of that is the Pinkertons, right? So they brought in. That's Homestead. So my old stopping grounds is uh, Pennsylvania, the Pinkertons. That was the private security forces that uh, put down the Homestead strike uh, violently. Andrew Carnegie and Frick uh, uh, and basically, you know, the, the strikers, I think, were working like six days a week, 12 hours a day for maybe two bucks a day, something along those lines. And uh, they, they were they had enough and they wanted some benefits. They wanted less hours. They wanted better pay. And uh, Carnegie, and I think this was before it was called U.S. Steel, but what became U.S. Steel, they brought in the private security forces, the Pinkertons, and yeah. they kind of shot them down. And, um, you know, again, the, the American history of labor is very, very violent, very, very bloody. 
Mm-hmm. Much more right. so than Europe. Europe, it seems. Uh, I mean, I haven't studied. You know, Europe is a much longer history, um, at least in, in terms of organized labor. Um, you know, probably fights have been going on for centuries. In, yeah. in America, it's a little bit newer. But I think the, just the power and influence and I guess just the money that was acquired and, you know, following the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, that was kind of up for grabs and, you know, how greedy. And uh, yeah, again, this is the robber barons. You got uh, Carnegie, you got Rockefeller. And now we're in what have many what many economists and even mainstream economists are, are calling the new Gilded Age. I think we're at a level I think we're I think we're past the Gilded Age uh, at the time of when all these robber barons and I'm going to continue to call them that. I mean, they're the the same, they're the same parasite class that, you know, maybe we could refer to as the billionaires today, the same kind of people though, that uh, exploit workers for exorbitant profits. And then I tweeted this earlier today, uh, instead of, um, you know, a functioning tax system, we allow these billionaires to choose what social programs will be funded by setting up bogus charitable foundations uh, allowing them to evade taxes. If we just had a functioning tax system, mm-hmm. we wouldn't need charities. There would be no, they would be inadequate. Uh, a functioning society should not have charities. We should we should plan a society that takes care of the most vulnerable. And I think that is maybe a good um, barometer for how you uh, would measure you know a, a civilized society. Is how are the most vulnerable treated in America? Uh, I mean, I just see pictures of the war on homeless. I just saw, I forget where this picture was. Like before we got on there, I had a little bit of time waiting for you to come available. I saw a picture of uh, a young woman in, in hospital socks and a gown thrown out in the streets. Uh, the hospital had had enough of her, no insurance. And I mean, I had tweeted an article um, maybe a month ago. The same thing was going on in Louisville, Kentucky. This hospital with the security just kicking them out. Uh, they're in hospital gowns, socks on the streets, um, you know, no one to take care of them, nowhere to go. Um, no, the, the safety nets uh, in the society are almost non-existent at this point. Yeah, I mean, ever since Bill Clinton's presidency, when he formed his triangulation and tried to appease both sides uh, by balancing the budget, you know, uh, welfare was cut and it was it was given a lifetime cap for every recipient. So welfare, as we know it, is gone. And uh, as you say, the social safety net is really non-existent, especially when you look at states where those states have not decided that they're going to take care of the people within its borders. Um, it is a shame. You know, it's just it's sad and it should be embarrassing. Um, you know, in a country that preaches exceptionalism, they should take it seriously, you know, that. We should kind of make sure everybody has a chance to succeed. Whereas like now your zip code is a very good determinant of like how you're going to end up in life. And I've seen that in teaching. I've seen schools that look neglected. You know, my, my districts, the district I taught in in Boston, I taught in some of the, some of the schools that service kids from the poorest neighborhoods in Boston and the buildings were all built in the 1930s. They were falling apart. They did not have AC. So we were boiling like two and a half months of the year. And, uh, it, there, every, every single sink and water fountain had, you know, or sink had a sign that said waters for hand washing only. And that's not because the city doesn't have good water. It's because the lead fixtures that lead into the schools, has not been replaced because the school won't, the city won't pay for it. 
This is one of the most liberal cities uh, in the country, right? I, I want to yeah. get to Texas and the Texas politics that I can't stand. The governor here uh, made it illegal to mandate water breaks. It's frequently triple-digit temperatures. Texas summers are hot and getting hotter, uh, some of the hottest on record. Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> I think when I wake up down here, um, it's usually like 80, 82 uh, and easily, oh, yeah, by oh. noon you were getting triple digits, but, uh, yeah, the governor at the, at the height of the, at the height of the, the summer heat, uh, said, uh, you know, no more mandated water breaks. Like, Oh, you know, thankfully this, this is business savior. You know, that was just, that was just cutting up too much uh, time and productivity for these businesses. I mean, imagine thinking, um, human beings deserve a water break in hundred degree heat. I- incredible. But, uh, obviously the sarcasm is I'm laying it on pretty thick here, but also the, the Texas state prison system, uh, talked to some prison guards. I don't believe there's any air conditioning in any of the state prisons. Um, oh. so we have, uh, jails down here, prisons down here where frequently temperatures are 120, 130 degrees indoors. Um, oh. you know, that's, that's torture. That's inhumane conditions. That's not fit for a human being to, to, to spend their life, um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, – and I also uh, some of the jails out in Arizona, I think some of the other jails and mass incarceration, these prisons and especially the private prisons can't even keep up. And, and the fact that you can even sue governments for um, – if they, if they don't maintain a certain uh, occupancy rate, which is just ludicrous. You don't think there's a conflict of interest there. Uh, you know, trickling down, if you will, since you're the trickle-down podcast, trickling down to judges and law enforcement. Like, hey, there's pressure from the for-profit prisons. We need people to put behind bars. Let's go. Uh, but, you know, in Arizona, uh, again, I think 120, 125 degrees maybe in some days. A really, really hot summer going on there. But I know some of the prisons they have are overflowing and I don't know if it's still going on now, but they had like outdoor prisons. Um, no. where people are putting people up in makeshift tents. That was that, uh, what, Sheriff Arpaio or whatever, that right wing. Arpaio, yeah. Yeah, I think that was his uh, creation. I'm not sure if these um, outdoor prisons are still going on there, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised, <laughs> you know, if they were as, uh, as America leads the world uh, in mass incarceration and, and uh, incarceration rate. Uh, we are a, um, a prison state. Yeah, so I I always taught students, and I think everyone should know this, you know, that we have roughly 4% of the world's population and more than 25% of the world's imprisoned persons. Um, Over 2 million. Over 2 million right now, I believe. Yeah, so the – it's just – it's really ironic, you know, that we are constantly now, again, told to distrust China. You know, they're so oppressive, all this stuff, when it's like, well, let's take a look at our prisons, right? And, and how many of those people are black, brown, indigenous, not given any of the same opportunity to succeed as those who write the laws or those who own, you know, large tracts of property in those states. It's it's really just a shame. Speaking of people that write the laws, too, I remember reading about on this on Twitter. I really don't watch too much or listen to too much mainstream news, but, you know, kind of pick and choose on Reddit and Twitter to kind of get my news. Just, you know, not not much changes. It's a different day, but the same old stories, just new faces, new titles, that kind of thing. But Tommy Tuberville, uh, an ex-football coach, and now I believe he's a uh, uh, Alabama um, senator. Uh, he's yeah. on the whatever it is, the agriculture Senate committee or board or something along those lines. And I think he's trading like um, 
commodities, soybeans, wheat, all that kind of stuff. So yep. obviously clear conflict of interest, the people writing the laws, you know, that's how the free market works. The people that write the laws get all the, uh, the good information and they're able to easily um, profit from their benefit from their, their, I don't know, inside knowledge. I mean, I don't, how can it not be insider trading, you know, but uh, that's the way the system works. You know, once you're in a position of power and wealth, you can really exploit the so-called free market to your advantage. No, you absolutely can. I, you know, it's true of any politician. I, you know, there might be an odd example against it, but you know, Democrat like Nancy Pelosi, her her trading, you know, the the value of the trades that her husband has made in terms of, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, you know, performing against the market average, like performing so much better than the market average. It's like, okay, well, obviously something's going on here. It's just really, it's ridiculous, and it's kind of. Um, it's insulting, right? Because it's like thinking that we as people are that stupid that we're going to see that and we're going to go, eh, we're going to shrug. Well, or- we got to rise up, though. We need a response. We need a reaction. You know, I, I actually I've been doing a lot of political philosophizing. I consider myself a philosopher, an armchair philosopher. I have no professional training or anything like that. Didn't study it in school. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we need to have a reaction against it. I consider myself a classical uh, conservative, I guess, because I take human rights and self-government and autonomy and freedom and justice, all that kind of stuff seriously. So like, that's how I conservatively, conservatively view it. I think any attack would be a, a reactionary attack. So like I said, I consider myself or fancy myself maybe a classical conservative because I want to, I want to maintain the human rights that maybe we started discussing during the enlightenment era of philosophy, uh, again, about freedom, liberty, justice, um, democracy, all that sort of thing. I want to get into some democracy and then maybe a little bit more like education, what it should be about. But you had mentioned Clinton balancing the budget. I got into some of this. I don't know about your economics background or if you dabbled in it or studied a little bit, but the modern uh, monetary theory that, you know, obviously the the state or the government is not a household um, and balancing the budget is not a good thing. It's not going to help the economy grow. One way to help the to get the economy to grow is to spend money, and you do that with deficit spending to um, stimulate the economy. The worst possible thing you could do in a um, in a recession or depression would be, you know, financial austerity. Uh, the people that like that are the people that own all the <laughs> the government debts; they can just collect interest on it, you know, as as the economy shrinks. But um, yeah, the, the basically the. The economy is not a, uh, or the government is not a household. We can print money whenever we want for new wars, and we're not limited um, at, at all there. So austerity is just kind of silly. And then if we want to grow the economy, you know, we got to spend it, uh, you know, on, on projects. You know, the new New Deal, like one of the things um, uh, I've read, you know, the New Deal didn't go far enough. If it wasn't for the, um, if it wasn't, cause it was, you know, mildly reformist, if it wasn't for World War II and, uh, forced industrialization, which created the military industrial complex, um, we might still be in the great depression. Um, although, although the, the new deal was a good start, but then we could continue, you know, I, that's why, you know, part of my radicalization came from like Bernie Sanders and the green new, new deal is to use, like I'm not as, a, as an anarchist, I'm not a big fan of big government. Um, but that's the only thing I see to protect us from corporations. Well, we could use the government as these public programs, like infrastructure that's desperately needed. Um, and, um, you know, like, 
Uh, you, had t- you had mentioned about the railroads. I mean, they were dismantled. Um, we could have high-speed rail, but instead we, you know, the the oil tycoons and the oil-based economy that we s- are still in today, all the roads are a public subsidy directly to, to big oil and to big automakers. We, we pay that, you know, as taxpayers, we build these roads instead of public transportation. These cars would be completely useless without these, you know, billion-dollar infrastructure projects, which started under Eisenhower, Eisenhower under the guise of defense. I know I'm going all over the place, but I guess I was thinking about the modern mon- monetary theory and how could we could use public economic policy to stimulate the uh, the economy, and hopefully with a focus of uh, you know addressing the environmental crisis that's an existential threat that might take us out uh, as we speak or at least soon if we don't act. And again, as I not too long ago before my ramblings mentioned the hundred plus degree heat in, in Texas. Um, but yeah, have you read any of that modern monetary stuff? And I guess you know the I guess taxes just what they do is to um i forget what their theory is to like um tax policies to stimulate i guess a currency to to stimulate currency use so that sort of thing like you spend the money and then the government taxes it and then puts it back into circulation and that's kind of you know how it works the worst way to stimulate the economy would be to trickle it down and give a bunch more money to rich people so that they hoard that money and offshore it the best way to stimulate the economy would be putting uh, money in the hands of working class people that are going to spend it. That's absolutely well, that is a Keynesian. Uh, Keynesian, idea. yeah. Um, John Maynard Keynes, and who was the other one? Um, the American economist at the time. Well, Mil- Milton Friedman is, uh, you know, one of the Harry Harvard- Dexter White. That's, yes, I think that's, that's the one right. I was looking for. Harry Dexter well, White. Yeah, Milton on. Freeman. We don't talk about Milton Freeman too much no. on this podcast. We don't like no. Milton Freeman. Yeah. Uh, you touched on a number of things that I, I want to make sure, make sure that I, I I'm mentioned. world famous for my ramblings that go nowhere. World no, famous. They, so here, here's the problem. If they went nowhere, I'm, I'm fine with that. But they went a lot of places yeah, that I also want to mention. So I got to just I, – I took notes. Don't worry. We're good. So the, um, the New Deals, I just want to point out one thing that I think needs to be you know, made a little bit more clear in the way the history is taught is that um, – Yes, FDR was responding to a crisis. Yes, the depression was horrific and people were in really rough shape. But the piece that's not mentioned is the the pressure that was put on the federal and local and you know every every level of government was getting pressure from communist organizations, socialist organizations and trade unionists. The, la- the labor union was revived. Oh, it was absolutely going gangbusters. After it was crushed the, the, in the 1920s. Right. Violently. So, by corporations, right? So, um, so that is important for folks to understand. But the other piece of that is that you talk about the Green New Deal. Now, the New Deal itself did a whole lot, you know, to preserve our wildlife and to get people into, uh, you know, the wildlife that we have here in the U.S. and actually to pay people to go out there and maintain these lands. And so, it's like you know, at this point, pretty obvious that we need to do the same thing and get people, uh, you know, employed just like, you know, Soviet Russia guarantee employment. So 100% employment of people who want to work, you got a job. Yeah, we talked about economy, economics a little bit here. And that's what I uh, what before I went on that rambling there, like for some reason, what's the what's whatever the economic dogma is like, uh, we need a uh, we need unemployment rate of around what 8% or 6%. There's some made up number that makes no sense. And that's only because we don't want uh, labor to get too powerful. If there's zero employment, 
then workers could just be like, you know, we're going to we're going to sit down. We're not going to work unless we get more money. But if we yeah. keep some people vulnerable, some people unemployed, mm-hmm. some people desperate, that's going to mm-hmm. help to keep wages down for everyone. So we have to manufacture some false scarcity where we need, you know, some rate of unemployment. Uh, again, whatever the, the economic dogma is. Uh, but one thing is, is, a, is a secret and maybe not so well kept is like, there's a lot of idle hands throughout the world, a lot of unemployed people, and yet a lot of work that desperately needs to be done, you know, especially around my local community, you know, uh, that I would like to take part in. But like a global economic you know, system ran by transnationals um, really doesn't do a very good job of putting people to work, especially not in, in local communities. Uh, I, I like watching like a lot of... Um, uh, like nature documentaries or like I guess it's travel documentaries, different countries, uh, since I don't have the budget to really do a lot of international travel right now. But one of the things I've noticed in some of these YouTubers are pointing out like big trash problems and, and just pollution and not necessarily from local uh, people, um, but, you know, like tourists and that sort of thing. And just a lot of infra- infrastructure projects that are needed. And again, capitalism is incapable of meeting some of the most basic human needs and again, there's a lot of idle hands, a lot of unemployed people, because that's part of the system. There has to be some rate of unemployment. Um, and yet there's so much work to be done. I'm sure you can think of a million different things that can be done in your local community. And I can think of even more down here, you know, that need to be done. Uh, and I, that's why I'm a big anarcho-syndicalist. I think if we had a society organized around democratically run workplaces and local communities, we'd have a lot better society than one that's managed by these powerful transnational uh, hierarchies, these private tyrannies, these, these transnational corporations that don't care about anything but, as Milton Freeman might say, these are profit-seeking institutions. They are not humanitarian institutions. So that's one thing I agree with Milton Freeman on. Uh, and, yet, and yet these are the institutions that run the world, and they do, a, again, a terrible job of putting people to work and especially um, organizing people around the jobs that need done every single day in any local community across the United States. I spent some time in in Baltimore uh, big homelessness problem there, big poverty problem there, and of course, um, tons of vacant homes that maybe a hard weekend or a hard couple weeks of work, we could be, we could have, I don't live there anymore, but could have been, you know, um, worked on and, and improved and, and put all these homeless people uh, and give them a place to live. And that could be uh, an awesome jobs program, you know, that could be, that could be done in every city across the country. There's not a homelessness problem because again, there's more vacant homes than there are homeless people yeah. in the United States. What there is is a, is a problem. There's a lack of will here. There's a lot, there's not enough, enough public consciousness and awareness to get it done. And, and I think it starts with the education and starts, starts with trying to get some of these ideas out there. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, but like you say, the, the the entire system is predicated on that desperation that's caused, right? So if people are desperate, they're also less likely to educate themselves. They're less likely to have the time to push for change. They're less likely to be able to get involved in their community. And they're less likely to be able to read important literature that helps them understand their world and understand that they're being given a, a raw deal and uh, you know that there is power in the group. And, you know, I think the best example of that in the U.S. currently is those unions that are standing up for their workers. Um, You know, and in some some instances, we're even seeing worker co-ops kind of increase in numbers. So where companies are are now 100% employee-owned and run, um, you know, there are a few different types of 
ways to do that. But, you know, it's just, it's, it's good to see. That's the kind of thing that gives me hope because like, you know, the desperation is there and it's got only gotten worse for families with inflation. Like we have four kids. It's not easy to feed our kids and make sure that's healthy, organic food. Um, you know, it's just, I can't imagine how families are doing it, you know, whose budgets are tighter than ours. It's just, it's a tough, tough place to be out there. And that desperation does not necessarily breed a, an environment where folks have the time to invest, although it does breed the sentiment that like maybe something's off here, right? If someone could make that, you know, make that connection with them and point them in the direction of organizing, you know, and of the struggle, whatever that struggle is for them in their community, how can they get involved in trying to, to, to find a solution for it? Yeah, I mean, if you're working 60 hours a week, a couple of jobs, trying to put food on the table, uh, you're too tired to go home and, you know, start a, a revolution or, you know, to even do a research project of what exactly is going on in the political and economic system and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, and I think that's how the system is designed. They want to design it. So we are tired. We are beaten down. Uh, they give us some free time, you know, and of course, our eight hour workday was, um, was all made possible because talk, talked about like the Pinkertons and all the blood spilled in the generations of labor that came before us that gave us a nicer life than the, the previous generation had, which is, which is great. We can, we can capitalize on that. We can like, we're not starting, we're not starting it at, at a time where we're working six, six days a week, 12 hours a day for $2, right. you know? Right. So we definitely have a lot of privileges and a lot more freedoms and generations that have come before us. Um, but what we need to do is to use that privilege and to use our power uh, to organize and to work together um, because, you know, alone we can do nothing. So that's, I guess, part of the inspiration that I had to start a podcast is I thought I had a lot of good ideas. And I wanted to get them out there. And uh, I think there's only so many things you can accomplish with a, whatever it is, 140 characters or whatever. So I like this kind of independent media, these long form discussions. Um, that maybe there's one or two people that haven't heard some of the stuff that we're talking about that is enlightening them. And when I started hearing and uh, listening and reading some of Noam Chomsky's work and Howard Zinn's work, you know, that definitely radicalized me. I've mentioned this before, but, you know, the movement of Barry, uh, Barry, Barry Sanders, <laughs> the running back for Detroit. Barry, I mean, listen, I, Barry <laughs> Sanders was something special. That man could evade a tackler like nobody else, right? So if, yeah. if Bernie Sanders had learned from Barry Sanders how to avoid the DNC and their claws, he'd be fine. Oh, man. Well done. Uh, yeah, but, um, yeah, you had mentioned co-ops here. Uh, but, yeah, Barry Sanders, nothing radicalized me like watching that guy play football. You know, I, I knew I wanted a revolution the minute I saw him. Uh, you know, Dude, he, up, ran, yeah. he ran backwards sometimes and ended yeah. up with a touchdown. It's like... <laughs> Wow. I remember, I think it was a game like Tampa Bay where uh, it ran like 130 yards on one play, backwards, side to yeah. side, you yeah. know, to, to score a touchdown. And so, sometimes you'd run like 50 yards to gain five, you know, I yeah. mean, he's incredible. Yeah. If everyone on the left uh, had half the, the stamina and the energy that, that Barry Sanders did, we'd be, it'd be a downhill fight for, for uh, justice. Instead, it's always as workers... Yeah, and and the leftists always say like the being a leftist is to is to fight for the underdog, you know, because we're always 
we're always in that uphill battle against concentrated wealth and power. So, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, if you consider yourself a manager or an elite, yeah, you're not on my side. But if you feel like you're the underdog and you're fighting for the underdog and you're fighting for the oppressed, you're fighting for the vulnerable, you're fighting for the homeless, you're fighting for the poor, then you're on my side. And unfortunately, it's an uphill battle. But again, we can accomplish things, not not much alone, but if we get together, we organized. And that's like one of the things I think you had mentioned, like, a lot of people don't even know they're being exploited. A lot of people don't even know they're being uh, oppressed. Um, and if if we can wake some of these people up and, and help them join with us, um, you know, like I think what the what politics tries to do in this country is put um, working class people uh, in, in 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 a competition or in a battle against the poor. And, and when really, if we just organize together. And realize that the the real enemy here is concentrated wealth and power and the tiny fraction of one percent, uh, and not the not the poor people on welfare or you know as Reagan might have said like the, the you know the welfare mother driving down to city hall to pick up her check in her limousine like that's absurd but uh, people will somehow buy it you know I read this study one time um, that in America they had studied it like uh, what America think a lot of Americans think that we give poor people too much money, too much welfare, which is absurd. Uh, it's one of the most miserly countries uh, in, in the world with that. But when they, what they studied is people think they, they give them too, too much money, right? Or people give people th- here think we give poor people too much money. Then they asked them how much money should we give poor people, and it ended up being way more than we actually give them. Like <laughs> yeah. people, If people realized, uh, you know, there's just so much lies, uh, misinformation, propaganda out there. And, you know, to kind of get through to people is, is, a, is a big challenge. And especially, you know, we don't, we, don't have a, we don't have a free press. We don't have a labor press. You know, we have, uh, you know, centrist, um, uh, you know, media outlets uh, masquerading as leftists or liberal, you know. And then we obviously, you know, down the other spectrum, you know, far right news uh, uh, institutions like Fox News, Newsmax or whatever, whatever else people. Um, but see, I think a lot of people that listen to Fox News, uh, the disgruntled workers that Trump got to him, got to vote for him, that got him in the White House. If we can convince some of those people to come on our side, we'd be doing really well. But unfortunately, the Democrats um, abandoned the working class decades ago. So there, there isn't any working class party like most other countries in the world. There's a labor based party, right. you know, a class based right. party. In America, we have two business based corporate parties. And the only differences is maybe some stuff on abortion and, you know, I guess seems like big oil seems to finance or fund um, Republicans a little bit more. And uh, it seems like, uh, you know, maybe the liberals or the Democrats, whatever you want to call them, is more, you know, kind of your Wall Street party, I guess. Uh, I mean, just slightly differing factions of the corporate machine, uh, but definitely two business-based parties. Um, And I think in many ways you could describe it as a one-party state. And I think what Chomsky says, it's a one-party state, moderate Republicans. You know, you got Romney, you got Obama, you got Biden. Um, you know, I think even McCain, although some people say he was a little bit farther right, but I mean, these are all kind of the same candidate. They just wore different, you know, a blue tie versus a red tie or blue hat versus a red hat. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, you were kind of touching on anarchism versus Marxism, whatever you want to call it. And I yeah. think that the solution remains the same. And, and that solution is mutual aid, right? It's working together with your neighbors, getting to know Bro, your Bob neighbors. Kim, did you read that book? Yeah. there's. I mean, there, I've read uh, 
I think analyses of him, and I think I've read some of his He's stuff. An anarchist. But an yes, anarchist. I actually I have yeah. listened to um, actually one of his books. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of important stuff there too. But what I'm saying is the the, the basis, the way you start both those processes is getting to know your neighbors, right, and filling gaps within your community through mutual aid. So that you're showing people that you're now exist, they can now exist with people support, with people power, as opposed to with power, you know, being you know given this, bestowed this from the government or from a nonprofit, like we mentioned, which basically exists to make capitalism more palatable to the general audience, right? To to kind of plug some some gaps, just enough to say, oh, we're doing something, and like you said, to get a tax uh, break, but. The solution to this is people power, right? Like like the Black Panther Party did, like the Young Lords did, you know, is to get together with your neighbors and say, what are the problems? How can we deal with it together? How do we make sure that we don't get controlled by corporations or by people with bad interests? And what can we do to make sure that everyone's needs are taken care of within this small community? And that's the, you know, anarcho-syndicalism that you have in your bio and that you mentioned. That's that's the idea, right? Is people getting together just as our early ancestors, as early humans did, right? The measure of an early human society, the measure of a hunter-gatherer society today is communal ownership of resources and sharing of burdens and resources. It's just like that's, that's what made us people. And I love so, it. But where does Barry Sanders fit on all of this? <laughs> <laughs> Barry, I mean, how, does, how does Barry Sanders play into this? Barry is down with it as long as he gets gets a chance to show us what he can do, which yeah. is just incredible, you know. Yeah. So, like, yeah, we would we would all still clap really loudly for Barry. Um, Rust Belt, <laughs> he was he was he was holding down the Rust Belt, Detroit, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh. These were all yeah. working class manufacturing powerhouses, and now they're just the Rust Belt. Yep. Okay, I did. I've read this on a couple of different podcasts, but yeah, I'm all for anarcho syndicalism. Um, you know, basically society structured around democratic organization of the workplace. Um, I think co ops do a really good job of that. Uh, they're definitely a at least a better alternative um, to corporations and that corporate hierarchy. Um, and um, yeah, I read something like eighty percent of co ops that are started are still around in five years. Versus something like forty percent of traditional corporate um, entities. So, yeah, it seems like there's definitely uh, a rise in popularity of co-ops. Uh, I tweeted this, uh, tweeted it, you know, ex-social, all that kind of stuff. I don't want to get into it. I guess I always see it as Twitter. But um, you can just say I wrote it. I wrote this and posted it on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you have you done? Yeah, Blue Sky. Blue Sky seems pretty cool. I guess they don't do videos though. Um, but yeah, that seems like a seems like leftists is, have taken that over. So I'm 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 on Blue Sky now. Uh, I think that's where I first uh, kind of got in contact with you. But um, yeah, I think um, yeah, I think you know, democratic organization um, of the workplace is, is is a great way to start. Uh, I think that uh, co-ops um, certainly don't solve everything, and they still have to kind of interact and be a part of a capitalist world. Um, but I don't think that you need, and this is what I was rent, uh, wrote on the internet and posted, but I don't think you need to read, you know, big, thick books on philosophy. I don't think you have to read Marx, although it might help sometimes. Um, but I don't think it's normal to have, um, you know, orders, 
being under external command, you know, to produce widgets and to produce to produce on command, essentially, to have a master. I think wage slavery is um, not all that much different than chattel slavery. That's what Lincoln and the Republicans thought they were fighting uh, during the the Civil War. I think a lot of the a lot of the Northerners were certainly fighting uh, to abolish slavery. But I think they were also fighting against, um, this is now uh, post-Industrial Revolution, they were kind of fighting against and pushing back against um, the corporate, um, you know, structures that were being created, uh, a system of wage slavery. um, And, um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's only gotten more powerful with Citizens United uh, that we mentioned. And, you know, in the early 1900s with, you know, people, uh, are with corporations now being looked at and given the same rights as immortal persons. Um, and, you know, these are the vehicles that the capitalist class uses to rob, exploit, um, you know, and take over, you know, kind of the world. Um, yeah, but I think co-ops, I think co-ops are definitely a step in the right direction. But yeah, I don't think you need to read, again, these big, big philosophical books to, to understand that, you know, workers... Um, should should own and, and have a say in the means of production. Those that work in the factories ought to own them and run them. Uh, and I don't I don't I think that's normal. Like I think that's only natural. I think that the corporate structures and the corporations and the hierarchies that are created are, those are unnatural. You know, but I think the problem is we kind of have to unlearn that. There's so much indoctrination and capitalist ideology mixed into the educational system. That's what I want to end with today. The educational system, the indoctrin, the, you know, the doctrinal system, uh, not just K through 12, but in the universities and the magazines and the corporate textbooks that are given out to students at any grade, at any level, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and they the mainstream media, you know, whether it's Fox News or CNN or even, um, even some programs on the centrist, um, you know, NPR. I think it's pretty centrist. I don't think there there's much leftist ideology or uh, you know theory or ideas you know going on there. Um, but yeah, it's in movies, it's in TV shows. Um, you know, the Western propaganda, the ideology, uh, indoctrination. It's very very deep, um, and we kind of have to unlearn these things. I mean, from a very early age, we're kind of taught um, a very specific framework of how. Society, be, society should be structured, but I think if you think about it, why shouldn't workers be in control of you know their own factory, of their own workplace, and why shouldn't communities have some say in that workplace? Uh, I talked a little bit about the Rust Belt. Um, you know these these car factories, these big auto plants. That obviously, yeah, I think they contributed to global warming and the climate crisis. But if you're just looking at it from a cultural standpoint. Uh, the communities were order- organized around these big auto plants. They were the lifeblood to these, um, you know, now defunct, um, you know, Rust Belt towns from Cincinnati to Cleveland to Detroit to Pittsburgh to Baltimore even, you know, as these steel yeah. plants and auto plants closed and as they were out- outsourced, some of these communities lost their identity a little bit. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Uh... You, you make a, a number of good points there, um, especially in the sense that workers uh, who own, you know, who share in ownership and share in the decision making of, of their companies 
uh, just have, you know, a much better outlook on things, right? Like, why wouldn't you? Um, and it, you make a good point about NPR, although I will say that NPR, I've always thought, has good reporting. They just always stop short of naming the problem, right? They'll, they'll like, describe what's going on, but they won't name the systemic issues, right? Because they have underwriters who aren't going to underwrite their programming if they don't kind of toe the line and kind of leave capitalism out of their crosshairs, yeah. right? And, you know, I think you, your points are good. And what I'd like to, you know, make sure that, like, we get away from is, is this real simplification that's taught in the U.S., um, you know, just this foregone conclusion that socialism is bad because oh, look, how so, look how socialism's failed. And it's like, well, the only places socialism has kind of failed or stopped being in play is where the U.S., you know, like, for instance, in Chile, right? In, in Chile, we had Allende, who was democratically elected. He was a Marxist. He believed in, in Marxist principles, and he believed in land reform, getting land back to the indigenous people. And, you know, the U.S., Milton Freeman trained guys called the Chicago Boys. Chicago had, Boys. Yeah, had been in Santiago and had been kind of advising policy. Uh, you know, destroyed the economy. <laughs> just destroyed the economy. economy. Well, the economy worked a lot like the American economy does. It works really, really good for the people on the top and everyone mm -hmm. else, not so much. No, absolutely. And it had a much more uh, dem democratized uh, society before that. Right. And Pinochet, you know, kind of uh, was just a brutal, horrible, horrible person. But that's not an isolated example. Right. That's a, one of the very stark examples. Right. But it's not at all isolated. It's uh, it, it's weird to touch a country on the map that the U.S. has not influenced. Um, and I, I grew up with the belief that the U.S. influenced those countries out of the goodness of their hearts, right? right? I was raised in a military The family. messianic vision to spread democracy, right. which is ludicrous. It's obviously not why we're involved with the uh, governments in these foreign countries. It's to advance econ uh, U.S. business interests, economic interests, and you know, U.S. power, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And just to make sure that U.S. business interests, that's actually the number one thing they're looking out for. Like that's when when I studied Latin American history and I saw just how much influence the Dole Fruit Plantation Company had all throughout Central America um, and knocking over strikes and kind of like keeping slavery going way longer than it did in other areas and all kinds of just horrific, horrific uh, examples. That was a U.S. corporation, and it was U.S. corporations who kind of like pushed the U.S. government to have uh, a wing that was responsible for training paramilitary thugs to go into countries, you know, from, so they'd take people from those same countries. Let's say it was Nicaragua, right? They're going to train the, the same people who go back into the country and put down the rebellion with absolute brutal force. So they're trained, equipped, you know, and, you know, pushed out of the U.S. back into those countries to try to dismantle left leftist, like, de democratically elected governments. So I'm reading directly from, this is Noam Chomsky. I got 75 at least of his books, but I just read it this weekend. And uh, so this is going to illustrate our point, your point. Noam Chomsky, The Umbrella of U.S. Power. Uh, there is a prevailing orthodoxy, sometimes been subjected to the most explicit tests. Uh, 
of the obvious, Laura Schultz, the leading academic specialist on human rights in Latin America, found that U.S. aid has tended to flow disproportionately to Latin American governments which torture their citizens to the hemisphere's relatively egregious violators of fundamental human rights. And that's also supported by uh, economist Edward Herman, who found a similar uh, correlation and also had mentioned that um, this is often achieved by decreased environmental uh, restrictions, murdering priests, union leaders, massacring peasants that are trying to organize, blowing up independent, independent press, and so on. And it's not because um, U.S. leaders prefer torture, necessarily, rather that, uh, in comparison, it, it tends to be uh, used to kind of open up investment to U.S. corporations. So when you blow up free press and kill organizing leftist priests and union organizers and, um, you know, human rights um, uh, activists um, over time, you, you, you know, you tend to get a little bit better investment climate. And then obviously, you know, you back that up with um, militarized um, terror states, essentially, uh, to make sure that uh, U.S. corporations are well protected and their property is well protected. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's important to understand that, you know, for one, because we should always pressure our, our representatives to dismantle all funding that goes into any type of anti-communist or whatever type of like, you know, undemocratic work that we fund as U.S. taxpayers. But it's also important to understand that it's not true to say that like socialism has had a chance to exist and not be messed with. And then, you know, it's like, there's still countries that are socialists that are quite successful as a result. Like, you know, and it's important for folks to get that instead of taking the narrative that was spun from McCarthyism on down from even before that, right. From the early red scares. Just there's, there's been a constant red scare in the United States. I mean, it's, it's a fear word. It's a buzzword. Mm -hmm. Although I am kind of critical. I'm going to push back a little bit because I do think that um, the reason that socialism gets a bad name is because it does have a history with very authoritarian uh, regimes. I think the Soviet Union was one. I think it crumbled from within. That's why I'm not a Marxist. I believe in peaceful bottom-up uh, revolution. I don't believe in armed revolution to take state power. I see the, the Bolshevik uh, more as a coup d'etat than I do as a revolution. I think that the, the Bolshevik vanguard party kind of you know, used force to take power, and I don't think workers were all that much better off. Um, I, I believe in democracy. I don't think that there's any perfect government, and in fact, that's why I you know, kind of label myself an anarchist, because I'm not really a fan of any government that I've ever read about or seen in practice. I wouldn't want to live under the Chinese government. I think they are very oppressive and authoritarian, all kinds of surveillance technologies and putting down of you know socialist uprisings. Uh, but the United States does the same thing, too. I mean, look at when Trump was in the White House, uh, rubber bullets and, you know, breaking up of uh, the riots and resistance to, you know, the George Floyd uh, um, murder. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that there I think like I think that socialism is a good thing, but I don't think it's ever been fully experienced. I do like the socialist um, 
I guess, anarchist revolution, you know, in Spain, because that was a kind of a decentralized movement. That's the ideal government for me. And that's kind of how I base my political philosophy. I don't want a highly powerful authoritarian organized state like what we saw in the Soviet Union. I don't know as much about China. And of course, I'm looking at any news I receive about China from a Western perspective, because I don't have any firsthand knowledge of it. So obviously, there's a agenda for how you know the state of china is presented to me but what i've read and studied about the soviet union that's certainly not a government that i would want to live under so let's kind of go and define some of these terms i want to define i don't think the soviet union was democratic in function at least maybe in theory or nor do i think it was socialist so what do you think about some of those comments and then why don't we go ahead and define democracy and socialism so what i think it's important um, is to to use that same lens you described using with Chinese news, which is absolutely xenophobic, you know, like really in a place where it's not based in reality and it's designed to drum up fear. Um, I would use that same lens when you look at Soviet history. I, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, Soviet governance structure was perfect in any Stalin any was one of the worst criminals uh, in human history, I would say. And I think that's pretty clear. Uh, I don't know if I can say the same for Lenin. I don't like what he was going about, how he was going about his business in 1917, 1918. But I think it's clear and obvious to me, and I think a lot of mainstream scholars would support this, that Stalin was one of the worst criminals uh, in human history. So I would suggest reading uh, someone named Michael Parenti, uh, black shirts and reds and kind of get a sense. It's a very honest look at Soviet life um, and how, you know, kind of some of that, some of the brutality that Stalin is known for is either misappropriate, you know, it wasn't something he said or did, or, you know, it was taken without, without the look at the fact that the U.S. was trying to undermine and destroy the Soviet Union from the minute that it existed and even from before that. So I just think it's important to like take that step back and say like, what, is, what, what are we observing here that's true? And what are we observing that it might have been kind of re-propagated and re, you know, continued propaganda that is meant to make us all in the U.S. never really believe that there is a better way. You know, but, it, it, the fact of the matter is that land reform worked and people got land and that people had, women by and large had a much better existence as a result of socialism and the fact that they had, you know, what, what are you calling socialism though? Exactly. Cause I don't so, think the Soviet union was socialist, nor do I think it was democratic. What, what exactly are you calling socialism? Cause I think at the core socialism is worker control over the means of production, but I think the centralized state controlled the means of production in the Soviet Union. Therefore, I would not call it socialist. And of course, the United States is not socialist. I think, you know, the Nordic countries, Scandinavia, the social democracies, they seem to be more in line with socialism than I would say the Soviet Union is, even though these are capitalist countries. Do you agree or disagree? So I would say that that's, I don't know if that's a 100% accurate reading of, of history. There were Soviets and, and, you know, the old Bolsheviks, basically worker councils was how the, the revolution got started. And there were definitely- How it got started, right. How it got started. But I mean, were, I think there were not much left of these councils after 1918, from what I've read. Yeah, I'd say that there are certainly arguments to be made that there was too much centralization. I will definitely agree to that. I will also say that we need to be careful about what history we trust from that era. Um, but, you know, I, I just think it's important for folks to make up their own mind, meet, read people like Parenti who take an honest look at the history. Um, and I would agree with you that countries, Nordic countries do a very good job of taking care of their people. 
Um, I would invite people to look at China as well and the way that they've wiped out uh, homelessness and, you know, that's one of the, yeah, they've been really tackling poverty. I think that was, it was like, Mm -hmm. uh, like (laughs) I think Latin America, that, you know, countries under the United States sphere of influence. And of course we tend to ally ourselves with some of the worst uh, criminals and dictators uh, in, in the modern era um, obviously I think Stalin falls in that category. Unfortunately, he was on the other side there or not. Unfortunately, he was just on the other side. I'm, 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 I make no bones about it. I don't, I don't care for any particular government or leader. I don't raise anyone to divine status, not Marx, not Stalin, not Lenin. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, um, I, and I think I, it's hard to say. I actually have gotten into some Michael Prendy, uh, I think Prenti, is that how you say it? I, I, I've listened to some of his lectures. I haven't read any of his books yet, but yeah, he's definitely, definitely uh sees the world similar to me but yeah i don't i just don't see the socialist um characteristics in soviet union i don't see uh you know the democratically organized workplace um i think it was very centrally managed the state was had its power and and the power was invested in not a capitalist class but a commissar class of powerful bureaucrats uh and autocrats that's why I love the the anarchist revolution of Spain because all the stuff that I've read is th- this anarchist revolution was organic, but the seeds were planted through decades of education and and um, you know worker worker uh, I guess led um, you know initiatives um, mm-hmm. and uh, there was not any centralized state. Um, and I guess the local communities, um, you know, there was an equal distribution of resources, mm-hmm. um, very democratically run. Uh, I have homage Catalonia. I read a little bit of that. But uh, Orwell says something like, you know, you, you walk down the street and you look at the baker, you know, and you look at the, um, you know, the server at a restaurant. Or I forget. He, he mm-hmm. just said a couple of different professions, just normal people. And everyone just like kind of looked at you like, yeah, we're all equals here. You know, this is how we're right. going to run this society, a classless yeah. society. And that's that's how mm-hmm. I want to live. I think classless society is possible. I think there was a clear uh, class society in the Soviet Union. I think there was a commissar class. And, and I think the oligarchs um, that are now in control of Russia, all that was is the old commissar class that had the money to buy up all the public institutions. So, I mean, I, I always get in the, I mean, we're on the same team. We're on the left. You know, we want a better society. But I always get into these debates, it seems like, with, um, you know, I don't want to say apologists, but apologists, Marxists, you know, people that maybe look a little bit po- more positively toward the Soviet Union and China. And I, again, I don't really look, I don't see too many. So here, here's an example, like Hitler, if Hitler was assassinated, I think in 1939, he would have went down as the most popular German leader of all time. Uh, his forced industrialization did a lot of great things. As long as you weren't Jewish in, in Germany at the time, uh, he, he, he did a lot of positive things for working people and he was loved. Um, obviously, you know, he, he started to go, pretty far right wing, but even up to his death, he was still very, very popular in Germany. And I see a lot of similarities between the German forced industrialization and, and the, the totalitarian society that Nazi Germany became and the society of the Soviet Union with the iron fisted Stalin as the dictator and the secret police, uh, the KGB and the gulags. Uh, I mean, tell me I'm wrong here, but I see a lot of similarities between Nazi Germany, uh, Hitler and Stalin. <laughs> I, mean, I know the Marxists are going to get all riled up here, uh, but that's the way I see it. Well, it's important to realize that without Stalin, uh, that, you know, Hitler could have won, you know, it was actually, uh, the Soviet 
union that stopped uh, Germany. But I would also say it's not really productive, right? If it's a point of, of disagreement and it doesn't necessarily need to be decided, like I think we have very similar goals and our enemy, you know, we're laser focused on who is really causing pain for people. And that person or that thing, right, is capital and is the, the stranglehold that capital has on our institutions um, all the way down to every individual who lives in desperation or in, you know, the, the fruitless and vain pursuit of, of more wealth than they can spend in their lifetime. Right? Well, I think, I think I have one enemy that's clear to me that some of the Marxists I've had on here to discuss and debate with do not have the same enemy is authoritarianism in a powerful centralized state. That is my enemy. I do not want that. I do not want a one world government. Uh, whether they say they're socialist, whether they say they're capitalist, whether they're democratic, I don't care what they say. I don't want a government run by one person. Um, I want a democratically run society with hopefully loosely affiliated, you know, communities, um, maybe um, organized around the workplace or mm-hmm. around, organized around the local community. But I don't want these nation states. I don't want these standing armies. I don't want these the military industrial complex. I think these institutions should be dismantled. And I think we, our focus should be on, you know, uh, the socialist ideals that Marx had discussed, um, education, healthcare. I know the United States is, is one of the only countries, actually the only country in a, in a vote I saw 176 to one. Uh, every other country thinks human uh, food is a human right. The United States doesn't. But I think to me, I think democratically organized workplace, workers are in control of the means of production. But I also think of socialism as using the state's power to help the most vulnerable with food, that people that have, are food insecure and people that are in poverty. Um, I think uh, opportunity for education for everyone. That's a human right that the UN, uh, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, uh, I think 1948 after World War II, uh, that you know everyone has the right to education. Uh, with education comes opportunity. In the United States, now at this point, uh, student debt is uh, potentially or student loans in college is a debt trap for life. You know, so that's obviously not going against the UN Declaration. So I think there's there's a lot of things. I think socialism is such a broad term, you know, and I think I've said this before on the podcast that all anarchists are socialists, but not all socialists are anarchists. I'm kind of that anti-statist branch, but I also uh, oppose corporations. There's uh, the Bolsheviks were more that, you know, pro-statist branch of socialism. You know, they wanted that all-powerful state. I will say, though, that, of course, the West, you know, was a, a huge enemy. And, you know, and we've had, uh, it's kind of what the war in Ukraine is about now. We've had uh, the Soviet Union and now Russia uh, surrounded, outflanked on every side, and, and we've had uh, nuclear weapons on their border, and, and, and NATO's a hostile military alliance. So mm-hmm. I guess I can't tell you that, yeah, if the Soviet Union and, and or Russia demobilized their military, I think there might be a pretty decent chance that NATO, led by the United States, um, potentially go in as an aggressor. If they were like, okay, we're waving the white flag, we're done with this supercharged military uh, I think that maybe some leaders in the West would see that as a green light to go in, you know, for imperial mm-hmm. ambitions and whatnot. So, mm-hmm. but I, I, I oppose, you know, nuclear proliferation. I oppose the nation state. I oppose these military, these standing armies, and, and in general, the military industrial complex. So, but again, well, yeah, I mean, w- w- on, in terms of Fidel war. Castro and 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 Stalin. He was definitely under threat. He was definitely under military threat. So I guess we have to give him a little bit of leeway because there was legitimate threat there to his people, right? To their people. 
Yeah, no, I, I think you make a really good point with, with the Ukraine situation, right? And the fact that we look at what what are the intentions, right? And what are the benefits to, to each group? And and you know, it's often on on Twitter or in other spaces where someone might accuse me of being a Putin apologist, which I am not. The man is a fascist. Um, but what what is true is that he was promised years ago, as other leaders of Russia were promised, that we would never advance past yep. many, Clinton. many, many. That started lines. with Clinton, I believe, with his agreement to uh, was that Yeltsin? Yeah, he, he had it was a gentleman's agreement to Yeltsin, I believe. Yeah, I mean, other leaders said it as well, and it's uh, it's not the only part of that that's not well known, right? You know, the idea that there are Nazis in, in Ukraine, absolutely true, and the other part is that you know on that. Uh, on the eastern flank there, they've been at war with their own people for quite a while, right? So it's not like, you know, war has just arrived. Geopolitics um, is complicated and the media tries to present the world and geopolitics as good guys versus bad guys. The war in Ukraine is a lot more complicated than uh, Russia's the bad guy, NATO's the good guy, and you know, yeah. we're, we're fighting over uh, Ukrainians as cannon fodder, you know, that kind of no, thing. No, I mean, but that's my point, right? Is The point is like a rational approach is like step back and be like, wait, why can't we approach peace really, really aggressively, right? Because peace is the only choice, like any war. <laughs> Any, I like well, that. That's an oxymoron. Let's let's approach peace aggressively. Right. <laughs> I love that. Right. You got to well, coin that. No, because of the fact that war is always used to to either make money for corporations and to to control and to abuse the working class population, right? So every war, except a, a revolution where people actually overthrow you know, the, the structures in place, is going to be one uh, you know of of pain for most people. And a profit for the few. We got like 10 minutes. I mean, I, I can't believe I've never had a conversation with someone for, I think we're going on over two hours now. I don't know what we even talked about. Uh, I don't know if we have any theme here. We're just kind of all over the place, but it's great. I love it. It's very organic. We didn't really plan anything and we got into it and we got into it a lot. But I did want to uh, get to education, which is kind of where I started. So two hours later, Let's mm -hmm. get to education. What's it about? I just wanted to, since I'm the host of the show, you know what? You're going to hear what I think about education. <laughs> but um, I think that education is a filtering system. I, I mean, a lot of this is, you know, Chomsky and his view of, and his take on education. Uh, but I, I think he's he's my favorite uh, author and, and my biggest inspiration for at least my political philosophies. Uh, but what what he thinks and what have he's seen and what I've read uh, and, and what I've experienced in the education system, it's a filtering system. Um, it's not too um, – it's to filter out dissidents and people that are disobedient and people that ask maybe challenging questions of the establishment, maybe of teachers. Uh, you're labeled a problem. You go to the principal's office, that kind of stuff. Um, what education seems to do is to instill uh, – indoctrinate for sure – to instill, uh, especially about the capitalist, um, you know, in their favorite system of living, their way of living, the capitalist way of life, uh, to indoctrinate people about that, and to also instill discipline, subservience, obedience. Um, one of the reasons to have just 
you know, K through 12 plus college and graduate school to have just tons and tons of assignments. And the only way to get through it is to be obedient and to do it and to do it no matter how dumb it is. And even if the, the teacher couldn't, um, you know, think his way out of a wet paper bag, you still got to do it if you want to get on to the next grade. Some right. people, and I'm sure you've had the experience, maybe even in your class, some people will say, I'm not going to do it. This is dumb. What's the point to all this? You know, and, and, and eventually those people are filtered out. Only the most obedient and subservient and the ones that are indoctrinated make it all the way through and get that high school degree, get that college degree, get that graduate degree. And, um, and what Chomsky has said of the intellectual class, the people that are most educated, those usually are the most indoctrinated. So I'm, a, I'm an outsider. I am not in education. I'm in healthcare. That's the way I see education, though, and that's kind of the... Looking back on it, on my experience, I oppose standardized tests. I oppose busy work, stupid assignments. And to me, um, yeah, I was kind of radicalized. I feel like I had to unlearn a lot of stuff that was taught to me over my mm-hmm. lifetime. You know, I was indoctrinated pretty deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think my political views of everything, of life and philosophy and just reality, have changed a lot over the last five or eight years. However, I've been kind of in this philosophical stuff and, and this mm-hmm. radical politics stuff. Uh, but what, what do you think about my uh, interpretation? I'm really just summarizing some of Chomsky's great work, um, uh, but I think a lot of it holds up really well. What do you think of my view of the education system? What is it from from the way from your perspective, and what should education be about? I'll tell you what I think it should be about, and you can kind of go for a little bit. But I think it should be about just teaching people to think critically, analyze the world they live in, ask difficult questions to learn, and to also um, hopefully – um, you know, provide people the opportunity to just how amazing the world is and science and the universe and even the political system. I mean, just just the rich history that human beings have of, of knowledge and the quest for knowledge. So I think just try to instill a thirst and a curiosity in students and, you know, try to get them on the right path. And maybe the path you want them to go on, maybe they decide they want to take a different path. Yeah, so I um, I've always used that line and my 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 goal as a teacher is to instill intellectual curiosity right i want them to learn how to learn but then i want them to learn to love to learn and to to ask questions and figure stuff out but your your quote and your kind of paraphrasing of chomsky was well done in that the school system exists as a filtering system as a system of producing the very most obedient of workers uh, people who are not going to really buck the system or question. They're, they're going to fit in perfectly to the system. They're going to be designed to do a job and fit in perfectly and know their role in society and not to ask too many questions, you know? Yes. Now, the one counter that I'll put back, push back on that is that in my experience as an urban teacher, teacher of kids who came from really kind of rough backgrounds with not a lot of support all the time at home, is that School is the only place where they come in contact with a whole lot of services that are life-saving for them. Um, in a, you know, like Boston schools and a lot of in all of Massachusetts now, kids have a free school lunch and also a free breakfast and usually a snack. So they get really kind of two and a half meals um, and they get a chance to meet with a social worker sometimes or they get support that they're not getting at home. Right? I just so read this. They did, is this Massachusetts? They did a 4% um, millionaire tax and that's what funded yeah. uh, free lunch uh, and, and maybe even breakfast in the schools. That's awesome. That's yeah, great. We need more of that. 
It's a bell. It was a ballot initiative, which is more, you know, closer to a direct democracy type situation where people vote up or down on the ballot initiative. And we voted for it overwhelmingly, like over 65%. And, um, but, but it's not always the case that a ballot initiative gets turned into law so fast. And that was kind of impressive that they did that. They really got it into law. Um, and now funding school lunches, which is, you know, big, but it's the federal government's job to fund school lunches. And, you know, not that they started doing that until the Black Panthers started feeding kids. Black Panthers were feeding kids in, in their uh, tutoring programs. They were feeding them breakfast. And the schools were like, oh, I mean, the, the federal government was like, oh, wow, um, it, we're not doing this. So the so Black people are stepping in and filling the gap. And so that scared them into action, creating the federal, you know, free lunch and meals and schools programs that exist in Title I schools. Um, but, you know, it's just, it, it is very much a filtering system in the sense that I, my wife and I have decided to homeschool our four girls to this point, you know, the oldest being eight, so entering third grade. But, um, you know, we have the resources, we have the privilege to be able to act that way and do that to kind of unplug our girls and keep them in nature for much more of their learning and development because we believe that nature is the place where they'll be healthiest. And it's where I, I hoped that people would go with education during and after COVID. We have the woods here in New England to have most of education take place outside, at least for portions of the day. And it just didn't happen, right? Most beautiful place I've ever seen in the fall. I mean, incredible foliage. I love it up there. Yeah, it's a nice spot. So we got less than four minutes to go here, or about four minutes to go here. I like to finish with some rapid fire. I guess this is my new thing now. So I'll ask you just some rapid fire questions, and then at the end we'll give you, um, you know, a few, a little bit of time to plug whatever you want to, you know, plug and what kind of ideas you're working on. And yeah, our goal is to kind of get together, hopefully somewhat uh, frequently, um, and, and catch up because I think we got a lot to talk about and we agree on a lot. Um, all right, rapid fire. What's your favorite dinosaur? Ooh, uh, so the ankylosaur, you know, that kind of with like the spike ball on the end. Of the I scale. love that one. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. it's like a tiny tank. It's a yeah. plant eater. Oh, that's it can, awesome. It can smash a skull with its yeah. tail if it wants. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. What about uh favorite animal? Maybe like modern animal yeah. that we didn't no, kill like, off yet in the mass extinction. My girls will tell you anytime that I will always say big cats. So it, it can go around in that family. It can be a snow leopard. Sometimes it can be a, uh, you know, a mountain lion. I think mountain lions are absolutely fascinating and incredible creatures. Too. Very dangerous too. Oh, sure. Lots yeah. of that, lots of deaths attributed to them out west. So if you're a hiker and you see a mountain lion, be careful. Oh, uh, you, I was just, you won't see you won't see a mountain lion. That's the yeah. Thing. That'll, that'll exactly. Seen, oh they, yeah, you're right yeah. on. I was actually just at a zoo this weekend. Uh, saw some big cats, but yeah, I definitely. I'm so torn because I think it's beautiful and I want to see these animals up close. What do you think about zoos generally? What do you think about them? Should they even uh, exist? I mean, I definitely, I don't feel great about it, right? But the fact of the matter is that some species have been saved from extinction yeah. because of zoos. Yeah. So, you know, if, if a zoo is taking good care of its creatures and kind of saving, doing it for the right reasons, right? Saving creatures who can't be uh, productive in the wild, you know, that's a little different. But I, yeah, I, I understand the concept of like opening all the cages. Like, that's not cool. Like get get them out of the cages. Do, you, do <laughs> right. you believe in aliens? Are we alone in the universe? I mean, what we saw recently. My wife and I have been looking at these. Like, it's just like <laughs> they just like admitted it. You know, I mean, like whatever. 
but of course there has to be something like what, what are we that you know self-centered to think that we're the only intelligent forms of life in the universe two minutes a minute now to plug whatever you want if you like uh if you like um some of the some of the ideas uh pat has today where can they find you what are you working on you got some projects coming up so to find existing work and it, it's a it's a you know, a treasure trove of interviews with interesting folks, whether they're politicians or in, in the case of like, you know, people who are, are working to, to activate change in their communities, then listen to Trickle Down Socialism, the podcast. So just like the same concept of trickle down, you know, economics and how flawed it was. The idea was like, we do in fact have socialism for the very rich and, and you know, and for corporations. So why don't we just allow that to trickle down to the people? But, you know, it, more so, I would like to plug taking care of your neighbors and being kind to people around you and building revolutionary optimism by being a good person and helping other people whenever and wherever you can. That's what I'd like to plug. All right, man. It was fun. I appreciate it. Pat of Trickle Down Socialism, the podcast. Um, I really appreciate this soon, new time. Soon to be a new podcast, but subscribe to that feed and you will find out all about it. I really appreciate you, man. It was fun. He's I got some fun. big pro, uh, big projects in the work, so uh, keep an eye out for this guy. Thanks, man. Have a great night. Thank you. Take care, man. That's going to be a wrap on tonight's edition of Necessary Illusions. I want to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank my guest, Pat, of the Trickle Down Socialist Podcast. He had a great perspective as an educator, farmer, conservationist, and a family man. I learned a lot tonight. Thanks again for listening. I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out. <laughs>